Relations between the United States and China have fallen to their lowest point in decades. It's interesting to remember that Richard Nixon once said of China, we have created a Frankenstein. In just last week, in his very first press conference, Secretary of State Tony Blinken said of China, it is arguably the most important relationship that we have in the world going forward. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first program in our Focus on China series here at the World Affairs Council. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. And our guest today is Luke Pete, Pete, the author of How China Loses, the pushback against Chinese global ambitions. And he takes a critical look at how the world is responding to China's formidable rise. But before we get to Luke, let me remind you that you can always purchase copies of books that are featured at the World Affairs Council by going to our Dallas-based independent bookstore, Interabang. Just go to Interabang books.com and type in the code DFWworld and then you'll get 10% discount uh, for you, the books uh, China Loses as well as any books that might be in your shopping cart. And once again, I see as our series sponsor, Maisie Hyken. Maisie's a member of our board of directors and Maisie, I'm sure you're watching and we're just so grateful to your support. And if you'd like to support programs at the World Affairs Council, please give me a call and uh, we'll work that out. Uh, you can do that by making a contribution for each program of either $500 or $1,000. I do want to remind you that our next program in our Focus on China series will be on Thursday, February 18th at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, we're going to be talking about Made in China, a prisoner, an SOS letter, and the hidden cost of America's cheap goods. Uh, the author of that book is uh, Amelia Pang. Uh, she's a journalist and really pleased that moderating that conversation will be Amanda Schnitzer, who did so much good work at the Bush Institute here in Dallas, uh, working on uh, human, free, uh, human rights and uh, the, the uh, center's freedom agenda. And as always, you can keep up with all of our programs by going to our website at dfwworld.org. And if you've missed one, I hope you'll go to our YouTube channel. You can subscribe. And of course, please share it with your friends. So as I mentioned, Luc Pete is with the uh, Copenhagen. Um, he earned his PhD at the Copenhagen Business School. Uh, he's originally from Canada and uh, uh, moved to Denmark, I think about 13, 15 years ago. And uh, his writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Financial Times, and the Guardian. Uh, I had the chance yesterday to read some of these. Uh, really very interesting, especially those in the Financial Times. I know we'll be talking about uh, your work in, in Africa, uh, but I really did enjoy those articles there. So again, Luke, thanks so much for joining us and uh, looking forward to our conversation and also expect to see lots of questions from our viewers. Thanks so much, Jim. And it's, a, it's really a pleasure to be here. And thanks for the World Affairs Council for the invitation. You know, you really did take a different approach. So, so much of what we read in the United States is, uh, I guess it gets back to Graham Allison's book, The Thucydides Trap, you know, will there be a military conflict? And it's always viewed through the prism of China and the United States. But you really uh, looked at China's relations, particularly economic around the world, uh, I'd like you to tell our viewers more about um, the research that you did, uh, some of the interviews and uh, just the overall format of, of your study. Sure. Well, it, it started um, where, where I left off my last 
book, uh, which was in South Sudan and Africa. And there I noticed, you know, that China was becoming more influential, um, more having a bigger presence, um, not only in South Sudan, but throughout the African continent. And I, I wanted to get sort of understand this uh, more closely. So I, I, I decided that I would, you know, travel around to, to different parts of the world uh, and try to understand uh, the question of how China deals uh, with problems when it encounters them abroad. Because we, China's, you know, global presence has really expanded significantly since the turn of the century. So I wanted to get a feel for that. Uh, and I did that by, by following um, what China's doing in its trade and investment and its, its finance overseas. So it's, it's economic outreach, because that's really, I think, still the largest sort of uh, international engagement that China has at the moment is its, is its trade pr principally and, and its investment. Uh, and I did that by, by looking, um, by going to Argentina, uh, by, by going to East Africa, um, but also here in Europe and, and speaking with not only Chinese officials based abroad and, and Chinese managers, but particularly I wanted to get um, the sense for the local perspective on China, whether in South Sudan, um, South America, or, or around Europe and also in East Asia. Um, and the reason I, I wanted to get this local perspective is because when I encountered China in most newspapers, uh, in, in research, uh, and also in government discussions, particularly in the US and Europe, it, was, it has tended to be a focus on the China-US relationship. Uh, and I, I, I became somewhat frustrated with that because um, what often fell through the cracks were, were China's relations with other countries in the world, uh, significant um, major powers or middle powers, we call them, like India, um, the, the European Union, Germany within the EU or France, um, Australia, Canada. And I wanted to understand these relationships because as significant as the US-China relationship is, uh, the rest of the world matters, I think, deeply to, to the future of the global economy and the future of international affairs. If you think of it, you know, the US and China together represent around 40% of the global economy today. They command the two most powerful militaries and the current strategic cooperation between the two is really gonna shape our lives uh, and, and, and the lives of our kids for quite some time. This is a, this is a serious competition or rivalry that's, un, that's underway. But at the same time, you still have 60% of the global economy, um, other major militaries, other technological uh, advanced countries, other cultural hubs that are also shaping global affairs and the global economy. So I want, I principally wanted to take a look at that other 60%, the 60% we, we don't as often hear about. You know, one of the things I thought that was interesting is that you were able to interview a lot of uh, diplomats in the different countries you went, Chinese diplomats. Were, were, were they receptive to that? And do you feel you got the straight story? Uh, it takes time. Uh, I think, you know, when you're covering China, um, both within China and, and outside of China, it, it, these are difficult meetings to, to get. Uh, and, you, you know, you have to spend significant time writing emails and knocking on doors and, and the usual work that researchers and journalists do. Um, but I, I found that Chinese officials, you know, once you uh, sort of got, got a foot in the door, we're, we're quite sort of uh, uh, straightforward. 
uh, and and in their discussions with, with me. Um, you know, in places like uh, Argentina, for example, China is bringing in, you know, large infrastructure projects, railway projects, hydropower dams that Argentina has asked for. So China, I think, you know, these officials very much see their their presence in these in these countries as a as a good positive thing, and there are you know China has shown a lot of successes, particularly in the developing world. Um, but and I also found that you know just in the time that I've been doing research on China, um, the past ten years or so, that they've become much more outspoken uh, Chinese diplomats uh, and and other officials, and and more willing to defend um, their their presence and more willing to to discuss and debate uh, some of the problematic sides of their presence as well. One of the things that I also found interesting was how you really sort of trace uh, Xi Jinping's uh, transformation uh, from uh, the way he was when he was first brought in in 2013 to where he is now, which is certainly, I think most people would agree, authoritarian uh, tendencies. Yes, uh, I mean, she, she, President Xi has, has changed, uh, I mean, he, our opinions and, and perspective of, of him in the United States and Europe has changed quite dramatically uh, since he came into power in 2012, 2013, as, as the, the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party and, and then after uh, China's president. Um, you know, many Western commentators originally saw him as a as a, a potential reformist and reforming China in the direction of, you know, a more liberal economy and even possibly some political reforms. Certainly not uh, necessarily towards a, a, more, a more democratic China, but um, an, an opening up and and a more, you know, open engagement and cooperation within um, the U.S.-led international liberal order at at, at that time. Uh, that turned out obviously not to be the case. Uh, many people in the US and Europe got Xi wrong. Um, he did quite the opposite. Uh, in his initial years, he really uh, spent significant amounts of time solidifying his power in China uh, through a massive anti-corruption probe, uh, which took down you know, hundreds of thousands of, 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 of officials and company uh, managers um, from sort of the bottom of the Chinese Communist Party to the very top. Um, and so he, he really, you know, solidified his power at home. Uh, and then, you know, in 2013 or so, started to, to push out abroad as well, uh, and, and to really demonstrate a more assertive, um, at times even aggressive, Chinese foreign policy, uh, whether it was in the, the militarization of the South China Sea, or the uh, sort of ambitious uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which is, has plans to, to, to build hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure and trade links and industrial corridors. Yeah, we're gonna spend quite a bit of time talking about that, well, about yeah. the Belt and Road. You know, it's interesting that um, rooting out corruption can sometimes be a foil for people to get more power. I'm thinking of uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. Uh, yeah, there was a mix. I mean, people people debated, you know, whether his goal was um, to to actually uh, get rid of corruption in the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and he he saw that. And I think, you know, the Ch Chinese Communist Party leadership does see that as a potential threat to their power. Um, 
But at the same time, a lot of the individuals that came under his uh, graft net uh, happened to be also what can be considered sort of political opponents within the Communist Party. Such a, a man like Zhou Yang Kang, who was a, a, on the uh, Politburo uh, of sort of the top leadership of, of the Chinese Communist Party. He, he was arrested. Bo Xi La, who was, a, who was a, a, a leader in Chongqing, China's big Western city, was also arrested. So we saw a lot of these rivals to Xi suddenly end up in, in jail as well. So it, I think it was a little bit of both. But you know, it, it's also interesting to note that you know, Transparency International, um, their ranking of, of countries and, and their levels of corruption for China hasn't really changed since Xi, came, Xi, Xi Jinping came into power. So it seems like the corruption uh, didn't really change, but the, but the people in power did. Nick Kristof had a piece uh, in, in, in the New York Times a few days ago, and he said one thing that the Biden administration should be cautious about is not putting or not assuming that she has uh, tremendous support, that there are people who are uncomfortable with him and will criticize him. And, in private, how solid do you think his support is? It's hard to say. I mean, it's a pretty uh, a pretty obscure box to try to, to get a, a look in. I wouldn't call it a completely a black box, but uh, you know, I think at, at the moment he, he, I would sort of venture that his support is is still quite strong within the Communist Party. Um, I think there was there were some jitters when the COVID-19 pandemic began uh, in China. He, he sort of uh, stepped out of the spotlight for several weeks. Um, and people were saying that he should be sort of um, responsible for the, for the outbreak in Wuhan. Um, but uh, China has quickly turned that around. Um, you know, they, they've, they've done quite a, 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 an impressive, although with, with harsh meth methods, uh, an impressive sort of lockdown on the country in the, the initial month or so, and, and managed to get rid of uh, much of the pandemic. Um, you know, most Chinese people are living, living uh, a normal life, um, a sort of a pre-pandemic life. Why do you think they've been so successful on uh, reducing the, the pandemic? Well, I, I think, you know, the, me the methods they use, sort of very harsh lockdowns, not people not being able to leave the house um, for, uh, particularly in Wuhan um, and in Hubei province. Um. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. They, they, you know, they really stamped out the virus early on. And, and that's sort of what we all, uh, I think, um, needed to do early on, uh, not necessarily with the same methods, but to take it very seriously from from before it you know started to spread. Um, and it's important to to note that China has not been the only country that's been successful at doing that. Uh, right now, there are rock concerts in New Zealand, um, and you know democracies such as you know ta Taiwan, 
Australia, New Zealand, South Korea have also handled the pandemic quite well. So it, it's not just something that favors authoritarian regimes, um, but uh, China, China was successful, uh, I think, uh, you know, not only because of the measures it took, but because I think people generally responded. Um, they, they understood the risk. Uh, they lived through the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s. So that, that experience, which I think also helped countries like South Korea and Taiwan, uh, plays a big role in the response. And, and we can you know, imagine and hope um, that if we are encountered with, with such a pandemic again in our lifetimes, that, that our intelligence and experience towards uh, uh, stopping it early on might, may have improved. We can only hope. I'm hoping it'll be, if, I never want it to be, but if so, in another 100 years. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the things that I've always thought is that China's efforts have been to, ex to have the strongest economy in the world. And it was really focused on business relationships. But I'm getting the sense from reading your book and, and other commentators is that now the Communist Party is putting more emphasis on exporting its ideology. And I wonder if you agree with that. And again, before you respond, let me remind everyone that they can go ahead and ask questions, submit your questions, and we'll weave them into the conversation. But what do you think about the ideology? It's it's a good question. And you know, in in, in American China, in in the U.S. in China studies and and elsewhere, there's a debate about you know how serious is uh, the Communist Party about uh, you know uh, spreading autocracy overseas. Um, the way I see it is, is, is twofold. Firstly, um, China is doing it directly through training of political parties uh, in different parts of the world, in Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia. So bringing, um, of course, before the pandemic, bringing you know, political parties and uh, media to, to training and lectures in China, covering subjects like how to control uh, public opinion and, 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 and others. So there's this direct sort of engagement on sort of sharing the Chinese uh, governance model with others. Um, secondly, though, I think the sort of um, legitimacy that China has won in, in many parts of the world through its rapid development um, has sort of an indirect way of, of spreading um, or at least legitimizing and, and encouraging countries to emulate uh, China's, China's development model. Um, and so this, you know, it, it's sort of, sort of like a, a fall of the leader mentality. Um, another way I think that, that China is, is, is sort of, again, indirectly spreading its model is through its international finance. And sort of a lot of its finance um, comes with stipulations that you know, if, if an African or a Latin American country takes on a, a large loan, that they also ensure that there won't be public bids on the loan uh, uh, and, and, and other sort of transparency mechanisms that might be in place in local law are, are changed. And countries, uh, some countries have, have changed these, these laws to take on that finance. And that also has a way of, of, of rolling back democratic norms. So I would take it seriously. I don't think you know China has a, a stand, you know, a, a front and center plan to make the world uh, more authoritarian, but just its expanding presence um, has that influence. 
You know, I don't want to be guilty of gross generalizations, so let me phrase it this way. Could you take an example of where the Belt and Road Initiative has worked very well for all parties in Africa, and then maybe where it has and say what's happened in uh, Djibouti or the railroad in Nairobi? So I, I think the, the China, you know, is, is on the Belt and Road, which, you know, its initial thrust uh, was very much infrastructure you know, new railways, new ports, new roads. Um, it is sort of helping to fill a gap that's out there. Uh, Africa as a whole needs over a billion or a hundred billion dollars of infrastructure every year. Asia needs $1.7 trillion in new infrastructure every year to continue its economic growth and adapt to climate change. So there's a massive infrastructure gap out there in the world and, and China alone can't fill it. Um, but it, it, this Belt and Road Initiative um, helps to do so. So I, I think in terms of positives, um, I think the roads that China is building um, are, are particularly good for, for local economies. Um, they connect city, within cities. Um, you know, I, I traveled a lot to, to Juba in South Sudan and, and the only paved road um, when I first arrived there, I think in 2006, the only paved road was from the airport to the main city and that was built in 1972. And just after 10 years or so, China, China and, and other contractors, African and international, you know, built up quite a few roads within the city and, and even have started to, to work on connecting different, different towns. Um, so I, I think roads make a difference. Now- Are these roads well built? There's, yes, uh, it's a good question. I because mean, that's I, one of the things that I've, I've read. One, you know, they're, they're not very well built, well main, maintained. And of course, the labor largely has come from, from China so that the, the benefit does not go to the indigenous population. Sure, there's a couple of things to unpack, I think, there. Um, so I think unlike uh, European and Korean construction companies working in Africa and other parts of the world, there's a great variability between Chinese construction companies. So you get the road you paid for. Um, you get uh, the road um, that if you, you, if you pick sort of one of the companies that has a better reputation and you pay more, um, you, you'll get a, a decent road. But it's true um, that particularly in, in countries heavily affected by rainy seasons, that a lot of the Chinese roads haven't lasted long. And, and this is, you know, countries like Angola, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, South Sudan has also had cases of this. Um, and we'll see, you know, infrastructure, the wear and tear on infrastructure and the, the cost of maintenance of infrastructure can sometimes over time exceed the initial construction. Um, so this is still sort of an unfolding story, but the basic message is that, that China has a variety of companies in construction. But I think, you know, the, the idea that China um, is, is using uh, its own labor um, to, for sort of very sort of um, uh, low skilled tasks like road building um, is, is, is a myth in a certain way. I mean, it also depends on the country. So I think many Chinese construction companies will come to an African country with a contract um, that firstly puts everything in their favor. So that, and, and, and many large Chinese state-owned companies they have excess labor at home that they would love to get abroad working. So if, a, if an African government in response doesn't try to renegotiate those terms, um, doesn't sort of push uh, its labor laws, uh, then, then this will be the case 
that, that more Chinese labor comes in. But I think studies have shown that uh, when it's sort of low-skilled labor, it is still mostly locals. But at the managerial level, uh, then, it's, then it's Chinese. What about on the subject of corruption? I know people who work here with some of the large companies and they're very concerned about Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. I think you can say that most American large multinationals uh, uh, stay on the straight and narrow path, uh, but that Chinese companies aren't under the same restrictions. And again, you point out in your book that there's been some instances where there've been very large contracts that have been inked uh, way above what they should have cost. So that that's bound to have uh, a pushback from at least one would hope some of the African uh, leaders or, or the populations. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, the, the, the problem uh, with the Belt and Road, one of the other problems with the Belt and Road is that it's exported uh, Chinese corruption along with it in many cases. And we see this um, in, in, in Africa, but also in, in Latin America and Southeast Asia. And you know, it, it takes two to tango. There are also local officials um, that are involved in those deals. And with, with a, you know, a, a major railway project in Kenya connecting uh, Nairobi uh, with uh, Mombasa on the, on the coast on, of the Indian Ocean in East Africa, um, corrupt, you know, th there were several corruption allegations uh, put towards the Chinese company involved and Kenyan officials. Another, I think, sort of blatant example is in Malaysia. Uh, and there in Malaysia, there was a change of government um, at the time when China was building tens of billions of dollars in infrastructure projects. And the new government under Mohammed Mahathir, um, it, you know, it's, who's no longer prime minister, but, but had long served as Malaysia's leader, um, they were able to renegotiate um, one major uh, high-speed railway deal by a bringing it down to a third um, so from 15 to 10 billion dollars. So it's that's not a small a small haircut. Um, and and this this was caused by the fact that the previous government had engaged in quite a few corrupt dealings with with Chinese, but also with other international um, financiers and investors. So you saw you know close to 10 billion dollars of deals in Malaysia get cut when the new government came in and, and sort of checked the papers and 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 changed things. Um, and it really shows that. Um, you know, the willingness of, of Chinese state-owned companies to engage in corruption is there. Uh, and so is the willingness um, of, of other, you know, international investors in some of these countries and of local officials. So it's a, it can be a major issue for countries that if they take on this debt, this large amount of debt, and, and, a, and a large portion of that or a notable portion of that is, is, fill, uh, is taken away by corruption, then that's going to, you know, drag down the economy for some time. So we often hear uh, talk about the debt trap. And of mm. course, that was a big issue, uh, I, I guess, in Sri Lanka with the port. But it's been an issue in, in other countries and projects as well, where China has provided the, the funding. Give us some examples of that. And I think it'd also be good to know how COVID-19 has perhaps made that worse. Yeah. So. Definitely the, the debt trap uh, uh, diplomacy that has been thrown at, at China has definitely sort of uh, caught on, uh, particularly in the US um, and, and, and in different parts of, of, of the world. And, and this allegation was initially thrown at, at the Belt and Road um, through a port deal in Sri Lanka, where Sri Lanka was unable 
uh, well, Sri Lanka was suffering from sort of high debt levels. And in order to, to, to alleviate those, it sold its equity stake in this port to, to the, the Chinese company. Um, and that, you know, began to worry, worry people, not only in Sri Lanka, but throughout, you know, Africa and, and well, South Well, you said Africa. they sold. I mean, did they have a choice? Well, yes, they, they had a choice uh, in the sense that, you know, the, this was the asset they decided to sell. Um, so the main point is that, you know, it, I don't think their hands were tied on this particular asset. Um, and, and, and my point is that the debt trap um, idea, uh, I think, is, is, is a little bit uh, over the top. I, I, I don't think there's necessarily um, a plan from the Chinese side to ensnare countries uh, in such deals. Um, that being said, um, the Chinese side will definitely use its leverage um, to gain more when countries can't pay back their debt. Um, it's important to note too that, you know, China is a, is a new and large uh, provider of finance abroad, but it's not the only one. And a lot of these countries have, you know, large debts with multilateral lenders and other bilateral lenders. But China, you know, came into these countries um, offering new finance, often at higher interest rates, uh, and cut, but countries took them on. Um, so this is sort of more of willfully stepping into a trap. Um, so buyer beware. Yes, yeah, I would say that. I mean, but also to be, I think, um, to, to be critical of China's approach as well, we need to understand too that, that you know, China, you know, came into this knowing that these countries had sort of already, you know, severe debt problems, uh, and they added to that, um, and that you know they they're not ones to forgive debt. They often China often extends uh, debt payment periods or, or waives interest for a time, but they also have taken advantage of the fact that you know they want. Um, to if the country can't pay its debt, they would like to get equity in the project, or they would like, for instance, a railway in Argentina. If Argentina can't pay the, the debt to that railway, then China will take the revenues of the railway instead. So they don't take ownership of the asset, but they take ownership of the revenues of that asset, which in many ways is, 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 is a similar uh, consequence. I guess one area where I'm still having a hard time getting a grasp on is when we talk about China and debt restructure and so forth, uh, is it the Chinese Communist Party that's, you know, holding, guiding the strings or individual companies? And who really has the ability to, to make these decisions? I think, you know, when you, when you see these, um, you know, images on your screen of, of Xi Jinping addressing, you know, the Belt and Road Forum uh, and, and other such sort of, uh, big government events, you get the sense that the Belt and Road is centrally controlled. Mm -hmm. um, it's not. I think, you know, there's a lot of Chinese players and actors uh, involved in the Belt and Road. Uh, sometimes you might have a Chinese province offering finance to a neighboring country, where at this, whereas at the same time, a Chinese state-owned construction company is also offering finance. And you see a lot of overlap, and that creates also these, these debt troubles. So there's the coordination of the Belt and Road uh, is actually, you know, not exactly there, uh, and this is one of its failings because, uh, you know, the, it it could it could lead to, as I said, overlap uh, in 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 debt um, and building up debt through different sources in China. But I, I think that the principal problem with 
with the Belt and Road is that this debt um, that countries are taking on, uh, we can assume that all the projects that are being built actually produce new economic productive activities. And in order for, for debt to be sort of well spent, they need to produce those economic activities. The port in Sri Lanka is not attracting many ships. The railways in Kenya and Ethiopia, they're bringing in a lot of Chinese imports into these African countries, but they're not exporting a lot of Ethiopian and Kenyan goods out of the country. So the fact that these are, they're not producing uh, productive activities for the countries at hand, that's the biggest threat, I think, to the Belt and Road. And to, to your earlier question, towards the legitimacy of China's model. If we don't see some of these countries really benefit economically, developmentally, over, over the next sort of 10, 15 years, I think the Belt and Road will have been seen as, as a failure. Uh, and, and currently it's, it's very hard to find, I think a lot of clear standout positive cases um, in, in large projects in the Belt and Road. Um, and you know we will see in I think the next 10, 15 years uh, how it all lands. But at the moment, for instance, one study um, uh, by the Global Development Center in, in Washington, DC found that you know, out of 68 Belt and Road countries they studied, 23 countries uh, are already in financial distress. Uh, and COVID-19 doesn't make this easier. I think particularly for the developing world, uh, the, the economic downturn from COVID-19 is going to last longer than it does uh, in the United States and Europe. So let's let's talk for a moment, and I'll weave in some of these questions. Uh, a country that is not part of Belt and Road, I believe, still is India, mm. and but Pakistan is where there's one of the largest projects. So unpack that for us. So Pakistan has always been China's so-called all-weather uh, friend, uh, and of course, as the India Indian-Pakistani relationship has always sort of uh, since since the, the separation of, of the Indian subcontinent, um, has they've always been at odds. That really uh, creates uh, uh, you know um, negative impression in India towards towards the Belt and Road project. I think they feel that by China um, placing this you know tens of billions of dollars in finance in Pakistan, uh, that they're supporting you know one of their regional rivals. Um, you know, dating back to you know Chinese and Pakistani. Uh, collaboration on on developing nuclear weapons uh, and and other and other sort of engagements uh, in Kashmir. Um, so I, it's it's a very testy relationship. Um, but again, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, in Pakistan, which is really one of the linchpin projects, uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, is supposed to sort of build highways and roads, uh, highways and, and railways, and even an oil pipeline through the length of, of, of Pakistan um, into, into Xinjiang in China. And bit, really what that does is that it, it would bypass um, sort of choke points, sea choke points within Southeast Asia, like the Malacca Strait, so that Chinese uh, bought oil from the Middle East in particular could more easily access uh, that land route through Pakistan. But again, um, this, this hasn't moved forward as, as quickly as, as many perceived. Um, particularly the oil pipeline seems like a pipe dream at the moment. Uh, it's incredibly expensive. Uh, and the main region that it would pass through, Baluchistan in Pakistan, 
uh, is quite uh, un unrestive, uh, and and there are insurgency groups that have that have threatened uh, Chinese engineers um, on numerous occasions in the past uh, several years. So it's it's a tricky project, and and it's also meant that uh, India uh, has sort of woken up in a sense to to China's ambitions within South Asia, its its perceived region. So we have a question from Ray Termini. We often do, and they're always good questions. Are China's overreach risks in, excuse me, are China's overreach risk in many financial, geographic, and human rights areas, for example, creating a source of resistance to its global ambitions? Yes, I mean, I, I, this is sort of the one of the main drivers of the book. I wanted to look at how China deals with, with problems, uh, and I wanted to see um, you know, how are countries responding uh, when they disagree with China? And, and as the Belt and Road, I think, is a, is a clear example, um, you know, there, there are quite a number of projects now uh, that, that have either been sort of reshaped by, by local governments to ensure that their countries got benefit from it, um, or they've been canceled altogether, um, or they've been downgraded significantly. So China has not been able to engage some of these countries on the Belt and Road, particularly democracies, um, very successfully. They haven't been able to engage with um, political opposition, with environmentalists, uh, with civil society. Uh, and I think this is partly because, you know, China, a lot of the Chinese executives of state-owned enterprises don't have those types, the same types of pressures they have at home. Um, they have more power at home, more connections with government. Uh, and they're finding that they're getting entangled in local politics, and that's upsetting their interests. Uh, we have a question from the Japan America Society. What international or domestic Chinese actions, if any, could change the status quo in Xinjiang and the re-education centers? Well, I mean, in, in, the, the re-education centers were a product of enormous overreaction from China's point of view. There have been, you know, several terrorist attacks uh, within China um, uh, over the last sort of, uh, you know, not, not of late, but in the last sort of 15, 20 years that led Xi Jinping to really put a net around the entire Uyghur society, uh, not just sort of the groups responsible for these attacks, but really everyone. Um, rolling that back, particularly in, in the face of, of uh, you know, uh, just partial international pressure, I don't think is in the cards. Um, I think it would take a really uh, united, um, very broad coalition of countries, not only, you know, United States and Europe, but also Muslim countries, uh, Middle Eastern countries, uh, countries, China's neighbors, it would really need to be a broad coalition. And we're not seeing that entirely take shape. I think, you know, there are many countries, even in the Islamic world, that haven't said much about Xinjiang and, and, the, and the atrocities that are taking place there. Um, that being said, I mean, the pressure that the US and others are putting on China um, is helpful and, and that needs to be maintained. Uh, but we also need to understand that there are countries uh, and, and some of them that you know, have been partners to the United States in the past, like Saudi Arabia and others that haven't been putting that pressure and that have sort of a higher moral standing uh, on this issue than, than, than Americans or, or Europeans. Uh, 
So we have a comment from an anonymous attendee, uh, which makes me miss the fact when we were all be in a room together and we could have this person stand up and, and, and say this, but it's, it's a good point. Uh, this viewer says, I get the sense that you are almost an apologist for China. 12 of the original Belt and Road nations have withdrawn due to repayment expectations in, in shoddy, shoddy work. Um, how do you respond to that? Um, well, I think, you know, we have to take a clear eyed look at what's actually happening. Um, where I see the Belt and Road failing is that it, it, it's failing to, to do what the Chinese government wanted it to do. And those are, are threefold. Uh, they wanted the Belt and Road to help legitimize their developmental model. Uh, to give a new option to countries, as Xi Jinping has said. Uh, they wanted to sort of sell this as a way to, to bring countries into their, its foreign policy orbit. And I, I don't think that's happened. I think uh, what we do see taking place is that uh, countries in Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, Latin America, they're close to China, um, but they're not interested in being uh, sort of uh, a client state of China. They are interested in balancing their relations with other foreign investors, be it Americans, Europeans, Japanese, Korean. They're interested in capturing what I see as you know, the, the, the diversity that's out there in the world today. Uh, and that includes China. Um, but it's not sort of being a slam dunk for China's developmental model. Um, you know, even after uh, four years of, of President Trump in the White House, uh, damaging uh, American, you know, polls have shown he, he, he severely damaged views of the US uh, around the world. But even after that time, uh, a recent survey showed that uh, of 18 African countries, that African countries would still like to follow the developmental model of the United States over China. So we have to take that into account that I, I don't think um, China has sort of its strings attached to many, many of these countries. Uh, so that, that I think is, is, a, is a clear, I think, uh, critical point on the Belt and Road. And, and you know, we can discuss others, uh, but I think China not being able to sell its model through this initiative uh, has been a major failing. Well, let's bring Anisha into the conversation because I think this gets to uh, what a lot of us would like to know is how is the US competing? And Anisha says, can you compare China's approach to financing in the developing world to that of the US or the EU. And I'll ask you to really talk about the US because I know we've, we've changed somewhat the way that we're operating in our uh, global investments development financing. Well, the, the, the big sort of difference between I think American and, and Chinese finance uh, to the developing world is transparency. The Chinese have very little. And that this is one of their, again, something that I think uh, upsets their own interests that it, it really, you know, we're dealing with a, we've been dealing with a black box when it comes to Chinese finance. Uh, and we're getting into the situation where, um, where, you know, countries that are coming into debt crisis, um, the IMF or World Bank um, or other, you know, lenders don't wanna offer support because they're unaware of, of how much debt these countries have with China. So therefore they don't wanna fill this gap. Um, I think the other big difference is, is um, you know, you often hear of Chinese finance that it's no strings attached, right? No political strings attached. Uh, they won't pressure you to make governance reforms um, and, and other sort of conditionalities 
that the World Bank uh, and Western aid, American aid, uh, is often pegged with. But this isn't exactly true. Um, of course, firstly, there are political conditions. One of them is not recognizing um, Taiwan. Um, another is, you know, there, there's a sort of a more a subtle conditionality that, you know, criticism of China, uh, of, of, of Xinjiang or, or Hong Kong, or, to, or towards, you know, its, its affairs with Taiwan, that's not going to be looked upon uh, kindly either. And there's that's sort of implicitly, I think, in these deals as well. But mainly, uh, the main, I think, condition, the main string attached to much of the Chinese finance is that the finance goes primarily to Chinese companies. So you'll see that loans often have conditions that say 75% of this finance will be given to these particular Chinese construction companies and to buy these uh, Chinese exports. Uh, and, and this is where I see, you know, the, the major sort of flaw again in, in China's Belt and Road Initiative, that it, it really crowds out a lot of the local private sector. So one study of, of Belt and Road projects found that 89% of the contractors uh, in these Belt and Road projects are Chinese. Only 8% are local. Whereas with the World Bank, 41% are normally local. So from the start of these agreements, there's a strict economic conditions that really solely benefit the Chinese. And that's another, I think, big difference. And that's an opportunity, I think, for uh, American development cooperation and, and others to, 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 to jump on, to, to, to help develop uh, local firms, local companies to engage more in these financial dealings. We have about another 10, 12 minutes and I'd love to explore how China uses what you call economic coercion. And we've seen that with Canada when there was the arrest of the executive from uh, Huawei. Uh, we've certainly seen it in Australia uh, when Australia's government started looking at um, how COVID-19 came in, uh, erupted. Uh, what can, and, and this is a question from one of our, one of our viewers, what can other countries do to counter um, China's, for lack of a better word, uh, power, power grab? Yeah, I, I think firstly is to understand it's that we're dealing often with psychological warfare here. So by that, I mean that often what China targets within these countries is a limited amount of, ec of economic trade um, or investment. So let me take an example. Uh, in Norway, for instance, um, after Norway, or the Nor the, after the Nobel uh, Peace Committee awarded the, the Nobel Peace Prize to a, a Chinese human rights uh, dissident, um, they, China in response, uh, put a, a freeze to di diplomatic relations with Norway and also stopped buying Norwegian salmon. Um, and this, of course, has made headlines around the world for, for many years. Uh, that this is, a, is an example of, of China's economic coercion. Um, in actuality, though, uh, just putting sanctions on, on salmon really doesn't ha didn't have a major impact on the Norwegian economy. Of course, China is you know, the second largest economy in the world. Um, all fi fish fishing nations would love to have you know, an open market to China and sell their products. But the, the salmon that was targeted, for example, it was a measured at a loss of $1.3 billion US between two. Did you find other markets though? I mean, what about the, the, the fishermen? Sure. First of all, you know, the, 
it, it only amounted to 0.3% of Norway's annual exports. And the fishermen were able to often uh, sell their fish elsewhere because salmon in particular, in, in those years at least, had a, there was a great global lack of supply. So, you know, they could sell their fish almost anywhere. And as one, you know, Norwegian, you know, insider told me the salmon industry guys were still driving Ferraris around Oslo. So this didn't have a major impact on the Norwegian economy. Um, they're happy to sell salmon to China now, um, but it didn't really... Uh, so what about Australia? Australia is the same story. I mean, Bloomberg came out with a, a report today indicating that $3 billion was lost from China's pressure over the last year on Australia banning, you know, barley, beef, wine, and even coal. Um, but Australia's exports total $257 billion. So again, a very small percentile. And, and, and but I think, I think this is a mentality, particularly I think in the United States and Europe, that we need to, 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 to change, that we prioritize um, even these small amounts of trade and business to very high degrees. Um, and we need to think more strategically uh, and we need to attach some value to whether it's a, a freedom of, of, of speech issue or a, a defense autonomy issue, that there's some value in those uh, and that we shouldn't allow a narrow uh, amount of, of, of targeted trade to, 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 to change our policy. So how can we respond then? One way, the long road is WTO reform, um, that you know, China has been able to get away with some of these sanctions because they, they use reasons such as you know, health sanitary issues. Um, but this is, this is the long road. And I think you know, the Biden administration will kickstart those initiatives. Uh, whereas Trump, as, as many of your viewers know, I'm sure you know, abandoned the sort of WTO reform, even uh, you know, handicapped the organization um, by not engaging it. Another, I think, quick, more quick fix that countries can do together is to, and this has been suggested by, by Japanese and American researchers alike, is to make a joint fund where allies uh, who are targeted by China, be it you know, Australia, Canada, or even countries like Sweden or the Czech Republic, which have been th threatened with similar uh, sanctions, that they can put funds together that can go to those industries that get affected by China to ensure that they don't go under, that jobs aren't lost for that period of time until we get sort of international rules in order to handle these types of I, I think it'd be hard problems. to see that type of cooperation, but that brings me to the role of the World Trade Organization. And let's remind our viewers, if this is still the case, that China operates under, is able to operate under very different rules than the EU or the United States, because it's still classified, what, as a, as a developing nation or? I think, yes, China still has a status as a developing country. Um, but, uh, you know, in general, what China has done is it hasn't necessarily broken, uh, I think, the, the rules of the WTO. Normally, when it's brought, when it's, a case is brought towards it, it responds, uh, you know, positively to those results. What China has done is it's circumvented a lot of the rules. So it's gotten rid of tariffs but it's added new non-tariff barriers like the health and sanitary issues that I brought up. So it, it sort of worked against the spirit, so to say, of the WTO. Um, but I think, you know, a joint fund between allies is, is less of a, of a pipe dream than I think it was, you know, 10 years ago. The numbers are adding up. 
Australia, Canada, South Korea, Japan. China has a lot of targets, uh, has taken a lot of targets in the last sort of decade. And, you know, I, I, I had one European official once tell me, oh, we would never help um, uh, this partner country in the EU if something like that happened to them. Um, but just two years after that conversation, uh, the EU is talking about an anti-coercion mechanism so that something would kick in within the European Union if one of the, its member states was targeted by China or another country uh, with such measures, that tariffs would be put, for example, on, on, those good, on, on, that, on China um, or, or another foreign country. So it is growing uh, discussion and these types of policies. I wonder how that might play out with uh, some of the things we used to have seen in the United States between Boeing and Airbus. Well, this, this is, a, I think, a big issue that if, if we want the WTO to work for everyone, um, we have to respect it. And, and Boeing and Airbus and the EU and the US will need to respect those results if they expect to, to also be able to convince China and push China to also accept uh, these international rules. We're gonna be running out of time in a few minutes and I do wanna to get to more of our viewer questions. So this will be more rapid fire. Uh, with all of the research and people that you know, what's your thoughts about COVID-19? Was it intentional or was it just negligence? We or don't know enough. I, yeah, I don't think we know enough yet, um, but I, I think it was negligence. Um, I, I don't see necessarily any information to show that it was intentional, no. Do you think it came from the lab though? Um, again, the problem is, is China has not been very transparent. We have, you know, WHO investigation team there now, but they're a year, you know, after this started, over a year, and they've been sort of, you know, delayed repeatedly from doing their job. So this, you know, this creates a problem for China that people are going to believe the worst of of that government uh, should they continue to be so uh, guarded. What about, we hear from Anthony McClure who would like to know, comment on China's actions in the South China Sea, economically and militarily. That could be a whole hour, another hour, but <laughs> go ahead. Well, the fear there is that, you know, China could, could at, at some point in the future, I don't think the, the USA, but at some point in the future, close off trade or close off particular countries' trade, such as Japan, Korea, where a lot of the oil and other resources to, to, to East Asian countries comes from. Um, but that being said, uh, we see that Asian countries, particularly India, Japan, Australia, um, along with the United States, but not only because of the United States, are collaborating more militarily. And this is a significant development. And I think Beijing would like to paint this as something that's been plotted in Washington, but it's not. Japan and India are keenly aware that they're in trouble should China uh, continue to expand its, its military across Asian seas. And we've seen them cooperate at, at sort of unprecedented levels uh, in recent years, uh, even though their economic activity between one another is, is still quite underwhelming. Even the Southeast Asian countries, some of the countries that uh, have disputes with China on these territorial uh, islands and islets. Even they have said, uh, sort of experts and, and, and sort of executives and, and officials that have been polled uh, in those countries have said they would like their countries to join the so-called Quad, which is a very loose uh, military security partnership between the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. And we see countries like Indonesia, even though they're engaging China economically, they're still pushing back on these security issues. 
So China hasn't won, I think, the hearts and minds of, of Southeast Asia. And India's participation in military exercises just recently took place, I, I believe, for the first for the first time. Yes, the, the Malabar exercises in the Bay of Bengal in, involving all the four members of the Quad for the first time. This so is going to have a go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. Please go ahead. No, China will paint this as an Asian NATO, um, but this is if it is an Asian NATO is an Asian NATO of Beijing's creation. So we're going to have a really interesting program on uh, March 23rd uh, with uh, Elliot Ackerman and uh, Jim Stavridis, uh, former admiral. I don't know if you're aware of this book, 2034, a novel of the next world war. Have you followed that at all? No, sorry. It'll, it'll be a book that you'll want to have on your nightstand. Um, I've read many of Elliot's books, but clearly, I, I, I guess China does play a significant role. Um, you, you do write in the book quite a bit about um, China's operations or efforts in the Middle East. Do you see a way that they may be able to influence the, the peace process? This is a question from uh, Mo. China has sort of had a long tradition of, of sort of sitting on the fence in these types of regional disputes or civil wars. Uh, I think that will continue for as long as, as they can. Uh, I, I think Beijing is still happy to free ride on, on American efforts uh, to try to stabilize the Middle East. Um, but we are sort of slowly over time um, seeing uh, a more proactive uh, China. Um, but, you know, uh, this is another big challenge for China is it might be able to have amicable ties with Saudi Arabia and Iran, but it's not able to sort of create a, a partnership between those two countries. So and that's going to upset its economic. You know, there's, there's been a lot of give and take about whether or not uh, President Biden uh, will be tough on China. Will he be and how should he be? That'll be my last question. I think he, his tone towards China will change and I think that will be welcomed by the Chinese and by many people abroad. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that Biden uh, will work with his allies as he says he will. Um, the only thing I would add is that he doesn't just look uh, across the Atlantic for those allies, but also across the Pacific. Uh, and I, and you know, I would encourage, uh, I think, and I think it, you know, his his incoming administration is already switched on to this. But partnerships with India, uh, with Japan, and with Southeast Asia are going to be much more influential uh, during the 21st century than traditional ones uh, over the Atlantic. Well, one thing's for sure, we really do um, appreciate the time you spent with us today. And it's good to uh, meet you. And, and now all of us can, can follow uh, your writings in the Financial Times, et cetera. And I want to encourage everyone to uh, purchase a copy of your book. You can go to interabangbooks.com. And again, the title is How China Loses to Get That 10% Off. Thanks again for being with us. And we'll see you again, hopefully tomorrow. Have a great day.